Well, hey, good morning. My name is Chris Sherrod. I'm the discipleship pastor here, um, also known as the other Chris. You just have to live with that. Um, we are in First Peter, and today I'm only going to teach on one verse. I want us to read the context a little bit. If you want to turn in your Bibles to First Peter 3, we're going to put it on the screen as well if you're more of a visual learner. But today, I really just want to challenge us with a simple question, and that is, why do you want to go to heaven? We're going to read about what Jesus accomplished. We've been studying how to show the world where your treasure is, and in some radical ways, as believers submitting to ungodly authorities, wives submitting to unbelieving husbands, husbands being considerate with your wives, um, not reviling in return, all of that shows that you are living a life that only makes sense in light of eternity. And uh, Peter calls that a living hope, that you've got something that the world can't give, that death can't take away, and it's an anchor for your soul, according to Hebrews. So let me read a little bit of what we have led into, that's leading us into chapter 3, verse 18, starting in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, set apart, sanctified as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, a reason to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is where Chris talked a little bit about where we get the word apologetics from, but I want to remind you this conversation that it's describing here is not someone walking up to you saying, give me five reasons to believe God exists, or give me some reasons to believe in the Bible or creation. This is because someone is saying, why do you have hope? I'm looking at your life and I'm like, you have hope, but there's something different. So we want to be living a life that only makes sense in that way. People are going like, man, there's something, there's something different that they have. I want that hope. And then as you do this, it explains, it says, but do this with gentleness and respect. And it goes on saying, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, not if, but when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This idea of suffering is all through this letter that, that Peter wrote that's all about hope. Hope in the midst of suffering. And here's the thing to remember for us. The norm for most Christians, for most of history, has been become one and things go bad. Become a Christian and you're going to be slandered, persecuted, things are going to go south. That's the way it's, it's been for most of history, which isn't a great PR message. Hey, come join this life-threatening religion, right? But that's the way um, it's, it's explained here in Peter. How do we endure this, this suffering? Well, we have a living hope. We have a treasure that suffering can't diminish, that's, that's greater than any suffering that we're ever going to face. And then we get to today's verse, and this is all I'm going to talk about today. We're just going to walk through it. It says... For Christ also suffered, he's talking about our suffering, and then he's reminding us, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is really good news. This verse might actually be the best news out of the whole book because of what it really narrows everything down to. I was thinking, what is good news to you? So adults, college students, students, when you think of the following phrases, do these sound like good news to you? You get to sleep in. Good news. 
I made your favorite dessert. Snow day. I'm so proud of you. I'll be your sub today. Is that good news sometimes to hear? How about this one, students? Class, I've decided to drop your lowest test grade. Is that good news? You passed your driver's test. We found your lost wallet. Class is canceled today. I'll let you off with just a warning this time, which unfortunately I've heard a lot. Someone already paid for your meal. You made all A's. Why don't you go home early today? I forgive you. She said yes. Your team won in overtime. Your COVID test came back negative. The surgery went great. We're having a baby. Your loan has been paid off. The cancer is gone. This court finds the defendant not guilty. Good news. We're going to talk about the most glorious news. For Christ also suffered once for sin. Let's talk about this for a second. Peter, and this is central to his book, it's central to the gospel, it's central to the universe, Jesus suffering for us. And this was never plan B, this wasn't like, ah, now what are we going to do? Okay, Jesus, will you go? This was always plan A. Back in Isaiah, it says it was the Lord's will to crush him. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I, I lay it down willingly. Like, this has always been part of the plan. Peter himself in Acts 2 said, this is all part of God's plan and foreknowledge from the beginning. What's interesting is Peter earlier in his life in the Gospels was against Jesus' suffering. When Jesus was asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter made this great proclamation that you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And that sounded really great. And then Jesus starts talking about he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, be betrayed, handed over, and he's going to die. And Peter actually pulls Jesus aside And the Bible says he rebuked him. And he said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then we know the the terrible, embarrassing moment where Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan, right? Peter was so against Jesus' suffering. He didn't see how is this part of the plan. That can't be part of the plan. You're here to rule and to reign, right? But now you get to the book of 1 Peter, and he can't stop talking about Jesus' suffering. Chapter 1 inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Chapter 2, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Chapter 3, what we just read, Christ suffered once for sins. Chapter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Chapter 4, 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Chapter 5, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Every chapter talks about Christ's suffering. And I just wonder, every time Peter mentions this, is he thinking like, what was I thinking? How did I not see this was part of God's plan? But here's the other amazing thing. Christ also suffered once for sins. And that word once is a decisive moment. There's this turn in redemptive history where what happened was once for all time, for all people. It's never going to happen again. It doesn't ever have to be repeated So you're free from this burden of trying to work or earn any kind of righteousness because Jesus fully and completely purchased all of this that we want with his blood. It's a one and done thing. 
Hebrews talks about this a whole lot. Hebrews 7.27, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily since He did this once for all. Chapter 9, He entered once for all into the holy place by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Paul says this in Romans 6.10. For the death he died to sin, he died once for all. This means it's a decisive moment that never ever has to be repeated again. Everything's changed now. And the good news about this, him dying on the cross means I don't have to hide my sin. the, The cross welcomes honest confession of sin, but also the glorious news that there's assurance of forgiveness. So God does this this thing at the cross where his justice remains intact, that sin doesn't get ignored or swept under the rug, and yet he can allow sinful people to be forgiven, to be actually more than forgiven, to be declared righteous. John Piper puts it this way, the wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. I'll talk about God's wrath in a minute. But do you understand what he did? How he worked that out? In his wisdom, God allowed his wrath to be satisfied, but we could be justified, declared righteous. That's the good news. So he suffered once for sins. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. And this is where people don't like talking about sin today, mainly because we start in the wrong place. We start with ourselves and comparing ourselves to other people. And as John just explained, we're, we're not good. When you start with God, you realize, okay, well, if that's the standard, then yeah, we're in trouble. Our sin is the big issue. That's what had to be removed, had to be dealt with, had to be taken care of, moved out of the way. That's what was keeping us between ourselves and God. So what is sin? Here's a few things to think of. Sin is the glory of God not honored The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. The person of God, not loved. That's sin. The good news is this. Christ came and died precisely for the things you're most ashamed of. In other words, your guilt and shame qualify you for his grace. And it's a great mercy to be brought to the point in your life where you're desperate enough to insist on what you need most. That's why God says to Isaiah, come now, let us reason together. Your sins are like crimson. They're like scarlet, but I'm going to make them white as snow. I'm going to make them white like wool. And so here's the good news reminder from Tim Keller. Whatever your problem, God solves it with his grace. You may be filled with regret for the past. You may be living with a sense of great failure. It doesn't matter what you've done. And listen to this. If you are a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for his grace. That's good news. 
Since your good works didn't win his affection, your bad works can't sever that affection. You can't outsin God's grace. In other words, you can't sin as much as God can forgive. If it comes down to it, a battle between sin and grace, you'll never be as bad as God is good. That's good news. So my problem still, though, is this sin thing. How did Jesus really solve it? How did he take care of it? And the most offensive thing about the gospel, about Christianity today, is this idea that there's only one way. There's only one way to heaven. Here's the way I tend to think of it. Our sin means this. God's holiness demands that my life be perfect, but I can't provide that. God's holy. Heaven's a perfect place. Only perfection can live there. I can't go there because I'm, it's not just that I do sinful things. I am sinful. So God demands that I be perfect. I can't offer that. It's called righteousness. I can't offer that. And then the news gets worse. God's justice demands that my sins be punished, but I can't bear it. I don't want to bear it, but one way or another, my sin is going to get paid for. So perfection and punishment are my big problems. And and the other problem, by the way, is that my sin doesn't feel like sin to me. It feels like life to me sometimes. I want that. I I desire that, actually. I don't feel as guilty as I probably should. But compared to God and his holiness, I realize I got nothing. I'm I'm literally empty. I I can't offer that. Okay? But it's, again, because he's a perfect God. So when we talk about God's wrath, though, this is where people think God's always this big, angry God. That what's his deal? Why is he just angry? Why is he always in a bad mood? People think of God like this, maybe. Okay? Isn't he a God of love? I don't like the idea of God being a God of wrath. Let me explain this a little bit to you, though. For all of eternity past, the Trinity was living in this perfect relationship of love, and there was no need for God to be angry. There was no need for wrath until sin entered the picture of his good creation. But here's what I want you to understand. God's wrath against sin is his love responding to evil. If as a parent, I just sat there and twiddled my my thumbs or yawned when my kids were in danger, when they were suffering, you'd go like, "What, what kind of dad are you? So God's wrath is his goodness, his love reacting to evil, responding to evil. Think of it this way. Here's a quote from this guy named Derek Rishmawai. God's wrath is not some irrational flare-up of anger and foaming hatred. It's not a temper tantrum like you and I experience. Wrath is God's settled, just attitude of opposition towards all that defaces creation. It is his stance and judgment of displeasure towards sin as well as his will to remove it. He's not just mad like, oh, that makes me mad. He's going to do something about it. That's what the cross is about. It's him saying, we are going to deal with this. And we know fully and finally, it's completely removed. So I'm forgiven and I'm freed from the penalty of sin, the power of sin. One day, the presence of sin completely. But even now, in God's love towards us, his creation, he is all about removing sin from us. If you're his child, he's working in you to help you become, to make you become more like Jesus. So... How did he do this? This is where I think we have the greatest news. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, right? He's perfectly righteous, we're thoroughly unrighteous. Therefore, I'm never able to come to God into his presence 
because of my sin. Unless someone somehow makes it possible for me to come to his presence. There's this exchange, though, that has to take place for God to do what John talked about, dead men coming alive, God making rebels into sons, enemies into friends. How is he going to do that? Well, we just sang about it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's his righteousness. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's my only hope. It's not me plus Jesus helps a little bit. It is, because people say Christianity is a crutch, right? I say Christianity is a stretcher. It's him completely carrying me the whole way. That's my only hope. This great exchange, by the way, theologians call this substitutionary atonement. A sub is someone who comes in the place of someone else, right? All through the Bible, God's plan is and has always been for the gospel to be salvation by substitution. That's how it happens. The righteous for the unrighteous. And this is this glorious news. The greatest person made the greatest sacrifice for the greatest gift to the least deserving us. That's the good news of the gospel. So when you think of substitutionary atonement, you can think of it this way. Christ died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. That's our only hope, this substitution. In my place, on my behalf, instead of me. That's what atonement is. And if you think about it, the word atonement, you can break it down to at one mint, that God is making us one with Jesus. He's, he's, he's reconciling what was broken there. He took our place. He died instead of us. It's put a different way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And by the way, this isn't cosmic child abuse, like God just, this angry God forcing his son to die for, you know, innocence. It's, it's not that. It was always the plan. This is the way it was accomplished. I have to have, remember, I don't have perfection. I don't have righteousness. Jesus offers it in my place. I can't bear that punishment Jesus takes it in my place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake, God made him to be sin, talking about Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. He was perfect. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's, that's pretty clear, right? God treated Jesus as if he had lived my sinful life, so he could treat me as if I'd lived Jesus' righteous life. Christ has no sin but mine. I have no righteousness but his. That's the hope. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, this is, a, this is a quote, I just had to put it up here. It's so good, you guys. You need to listen to this quote. The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself, his wrath, by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. Listen to this. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. I'm doing what I want to do, right? While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Isn't that good news? When you understand this good news, you are free from having to prove to other people that you're righteous. You just don't play that game anymore. 
You're humble. You're broken over your sin. You're teachable. Because you go, it's not my righteousness. That's not what I'm counting on. Thank goodness. It's this salvation by substitution. That's my only claim before God. What Paul said in Philippians 3, not having a righteousness of my own that comes by works, but what comes by faith in the Son of God. Galatians 3 puts it a different way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became our curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. If it helps some of you to learn this through a cartoon, I'm going to do that as well. I found this this week. I thought it was helpful. I like cartoons. God, I'm so sorry for my sins. Can you forgive me? Jesus comes along in his perfect righteousness. There's you in your rags. He stops, takes off your filthy rags and puts them on himself and puts his righteousness on you. It's that simple. That's what Peter's explaining, this great exchange. So this is why he's the only way. When people get upset about this, you guys, it's our, only, our option is I pay for my sins or I let Jesus pay for my sins. Either way, my sins are getting paid for because God is just. And Jesus is the only way because he's the only cure, the only antidote, the only substitute who didn't have the same problem that I have. Great religious leaders, teachers like Gandhi, he's got the same problem I have. Joseph Smith, Muhammad, Confucius, the Pope, Mother Teresa, they've all got the same problem I have. So Jesus' perfection and his punishment count as mine. That's good news. So here's what it accomplishes. The next part of verse 18. Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous. That, the goal, the purpose, the end. This is what it was all about. That he might bring us to God. That Greek word bring means like, like a, an introduction by one person as a kind of a, to a third party. Like you meeting a celebrity. Like, hey, I want you to... Come over here. I want you to meet this person. You, you don't have access to do that, but this introduction has been made. A few years ago, I was in Auburn, where my wife grew up, where we went to school. And uh, a family friend of ours, whose son also worked for me on staff, made the basketball team. And so while we were there, he was in town. And I don't remember if it was me or him, but I was like, could we go into the locker room? Could we go out on the court? And he's like, yeah, let's go. So we get on campus, and there's the normal area where most commoners can be, but then we got to go through these doors that only basketball players could go into and into the locker room and look around and go out on the court. It was awesome. And then Coach Pearl himself, who was the new coach, was there walking by, and he goes, oh, okay, come here, come over here. And he introduces me to the head basketball coach of Auburn University. That's what this verse is talking about. There's this, this third-party introduction that you don't have that normal access, but because of Jesus, now you get to enjoy God forever. But if I may ask, why do you want to go to heaven? Is it because I get forgiveness of sins or no wrath or hell? Or I get to be with loved ones or I get to live forever? Those are great things, but guess what? Anybody would want those. Sure, I don't want to go to hell. Sure, I want to live forever. Sure, I'd love to see people who've died. 
Is there anything else? Why do you want to go to heaven? What's the end, the goal, the point? Peter's saying to bring us to God himself. That's the great news, to enjoy him forever. All these other gifts that we're talking about are to get to God. Forgiveness of sins makes it so that our guilt doesn't keep us from God. We're justified so that our condemnation doesn't keep us away from God. God's wrath is satisfied so that doesn't stand between us and God as our Father. We're given eternal life now with new bodies in the resurrection so that we have the capacity for being with God forever and enjoying Him to the fullest. So this is the heart check, you guys. Why do you want heaven? Why do you want to be justified? Why do you want the wrath of God to be propitiated to enjoy God now and forever? There's a story that C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce. The whole, the whole book is this um, mythical story, this journey, um, this bus ride through heaven and hell. And there's this lady named Pam who's on the bus, and she just wants to go to heaven to see her son Michael, who's been dead for like 10 years. And she just obsessed over him and kept his room exactly the way it was when he died and kind of made things miserable for um, her daughter and her husband. And it was all about Michael. And in this story that C.S. Lewis writes, her only reason for wanting to go to heaven is to be with Michael. And she has this conversation. She meets this guy, Reginald, that she knew before. And um, basically, he's, he's saying like, well, you're, you're, you're kind of not, you're not, ready for, you're not ready for heaven. And her response to Reginald is, oh, you mean religion and all that sort of thing? Well, this is hardly the moment. And from you, of all people, well, never mind. I'll do whatever's necessary. What do you want me to do? Come on. The sooner I begin it, the sooner they'll let me see my boy. I'm quite ready. So I just, I need religion. I need God. I need what? Just tell me what I'm doing so that I can see Michael. And Reginald has to kind of correct her gently and says, but Pam, do think, don't you see that you are not beginning at all? As long as you're in that state of mind, you're treating God only as a means to Michael. But this whole thickening treatment consists in learning to want God for his own sake. Why do you want to go to heaven? Jonathan Edwards says, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. All those things are these faint echoes of the bliss that we get to enjoy in heaven. But a lot of times we mistake these present fragments for the eternal feast that we get to enjoy. With this amazing God in his presence. This God who never had a beginning and will never end who is absolute reality, who is utterly independent. In other words, everything else that is not God depends totally on him. All the universe is by comparison to God as nothing. He's constant. He's the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. God does whatever he pleases and is always right. And it's always beautiful and always in accord with truth. God is the most important and most valuable reality and person in the universe. That's what Jesus made a way to usher us into, him. 
And as you think about all these glories of God, and your attitude is like, well, I mean, that's great and all, but, right? Yeah, heaven's going to be great, but I mean, but right now, if I can't watch that game, I don't know. It's like, that's really important. I mean, I know God's awesome, but let's talk about that outfit Kylie Jenner was wearing. Right, girls? Of course the Bible is the very words of the God of the universe, but did you hear that new song by Justin Bieber? I got to check Facebook, social media, YouTube. I'm, some of us are literally addicted. And what those things, by the way, are going to show us at the last day is that lack of time is not a reason we didn't read our Bibles or pray. Plenty of time. Do you value him as the supreme treasure? Or just like, heaven's going to be awesome, and then God will be there too? Or is it God is it? That's what I'm going to be there for. Augustine said, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. In other words, the gospel, love that he offers us, is ultimately the gift of himself. That's what we get to enjoy. That's what we're made for. That's what we lost because of our sin. That's what he came to restore. Way back in 1990, when my wife and I first met, we were working at a summer camp in Northern California. And one morning, four of us staffers got up before it was light out to hike to the top of Etna Summit to watch the sun come up over Mount Shasta. We had heard it was awesome. We wanted to see it. So we had to get up super early, and it was cold, and we had to get through. There's a lot of steep climbing and getting through thorns and bushes and over the rocks and stuff to get there. And we, we just made it in time, and we sat there, and the sun came up over Mount Shasta. And I got up my little phone, phone like my, my camera, I mean. It was like, click, ring, 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 ring. <laughs> click, ring. It was like the picture itself, you're like, ah, that doesn't do justice of how awesome that view was. But let me tell you this. I didn't have to stand there and go, okay. Feelings of awe, feelings of wonder, feelings of, come on, let's have those feelings. They just happened when I saw it. Seeing it is what made it well up inside of me. The hard part was getting to the place where I could see it. Fighting through all those other things to get to that place. Then I saw it and it was awesome. Here's what Psalm 17 says. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. You guys, our battle is not when I really see God for who he is. I mean, do I have to kind of come up with these? No, the battle is getting through all the other stuff to a place where you can see him, where he is seen as his all-glorious self, all-satisfying self, who he really is. But he can never be your source of peace if God is not your source of satisfaction. He can't be your source of peace if the world is your source of your satisfaction, right? When David was in the wilderness of Judea, he wrote Psalm 63 and he said this, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, and then he says this, because your steadfast love is better than life, better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Some of you right now might be troubled that you're like, I don't really feel that way. I, I, I want to. I want to grow in that. But man, I, it's, there's stuff I got to get through to see him for who he really is. But when you do that, Charles Spurgeon says this, you will generally notice that when the believer gets near to God, tastes the unseen joys and eats the bread that was made in heaven, all the feasts of earth, all its amusements and all its glories seem very flat, stale, and unprofitable. And this becomes even the heart of prayer, not getting things from God, but getting God himself. That's what you want. This last part of the verse, I'll just tell you, it's going to lead into the, the next line of thinking that Chris is going to unpack next week. But he just mentions Jesus put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. This is actually a hard verse to translate because it's actually not clear. Is the spirit like capital S with the Holy Spirit? Is it Jesus? What does it mean? Some translations actually say made alive by the spirit. He's not denying that Jesus physically rose again, by the way. Peter himself said this in Acts 2, like we're witnesses. We saw him. He's He's back to life, but it's more likely talking about just the indestructible life, his unlimited power after the resurrection in this new glorified body. So this is the good news. And I want to remind you, Jesus died for the real you. So come to him with the real you, what you're feeling, what you're going through right now with your temptations and struggles and doubts, anxieties, the gospel breaks Hard hearts and heals broken hearts. God just asks for repentance and faith. Turn and trust. And this exchange can be yours. This is what he offers. This glorious news. Robert White put it this way. Christ's death was the greatest act of love and created the strongest degree of unity within the broadest field of diversity. His sacrifice awarded the highest medal of honor to the lowliest of people. And the good news is there's simply no Sin struggle within or temptation without that lives beyond God's forgiveness and his delivering grace. Let me give you three applications from this. There's a lot, but let me just give you three. One of them is, I just want to start off with this other summary of what we've just talked about, why, they, why we're not condemned. This is from Romans chapter 8, the first four verses. There is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation? None. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's favorite way of describing us. He actually never addresses us as Christians. Over a hundred times he says some form of in Christ. There's no condemnation. Well, why? Did God just withhold it? Did he not address sins? No, he, he dealt with it. Here's what it says. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Here's how. For God has done, God did, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's Jesus becoming a man, taking our sin on himself. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, perfection that he demanded, right? Might be fulfilled in us. That's the great exchange. So it's not that God withheld his wrath for my sin. He fully poured out his wrath for my sin. Do you guys know that? Do you understand that? Just not on me. 
In other words, he's saying, what I should have been doing to you, I'm doing to my son. So God remains completely just. Sin has been punished. It's been taken care of. My wrath is satisfied. And you get the righteousness of Christ. You have that if you're a follower of Jesus. If you trusted him, right now in your seat, you are the righteousness of Christ. That's your position. That's what God calls you. So first application, do you really understand your rescue? Think, be honest. Is this a little clearer now? Do you really understand what you're rescued from and how God accomplished that? Do you ever meditate on it? I, I think of a simple, silly example, but how many of you ever go find your, 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 the deed to your home and you, you take it out and look at it and show it to other people? You think about, look, have you seen this? This is amazing. Probably not, but guess what? That's how a lot of us are towards our salvation. Well, that's that thing that happened back then that was purchased and stuff, and yeah, I think I know where it is. Or do you revel in it? Are you like, can I tell you again what's happened? Do you realize this? God, thank you. Chief of sinners, you've forgiven me. Oh my goodness. Do you really understand your own rescue? Simply put, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared imagine, yet we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. So the gospel humbles you out of your pride and self-sufficiency, but then it affirms you out of fear, out of shame. Second application, uh, I'm just going to put a quote up here that I read this week that I think ends with a great question. The critical question for our generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Why do you want to go to heaven? What are you looking forward to? What glory will you be amazed at? This is the vision that John got in Revelation 5. Just listen to this. If you need to close your eyes to picture this. John says, Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, literally slaughtered, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of saints. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying 
with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That future vision is what gives meaning to all of life right now. That's what heaven is about. That's what we want. But check yourself. As you're listening to that, are some of you going like, yeah, that, that's awesome. <clears throat> How long is that going to last? When do we get to the... No, it's, it's Jesus. He's the focus. So I'll challenge you with this. How are you fueling your passion for the name and fame of Jesus? What fuel do you need to pour on the fire of your faith? Reading about him, spending time with him, thinking about him, not taking in so much of the other stuff of the world? Like, what is it that you need that's going to pour fire on your faith that you really are, you have a white-hot passion for the name and fame of Jesus? And the problem is, this doesn't happen by accident. I'm not naturally like this. I'm naturally, I want to be comfortable and happy. But what feeds your faith? Reading God's word feeds my faith. What is it that feeds your faith? Last question, does your passion for Jesus overflow into compassion for others? This is what our Wednesday night life group on evangelism is all about. I've experienced this hope. I want someone else to experience this hope. Jesus never tells lost people to go to church. He tells the church to go to lost people. Is my heart broken for what breaks his heart, for who his heart breaks for? Could he say, well done, good and faithful servant. You love the people I loved. Paul says this in Colossians 1, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's what Peter's all about, hope, right? There's living hope. Paul's saying the reason you did this was because of your hope laid up in heaven didn't make you so like, I'm not even going to worry about the stuff of this world. It made you focus on how can I love people in this world. It actually opens your hands. It makes you realize all the stuff of this world are nothing compared to that. And I want you to experience that. I want to introduce you to that. That's the name and fame that I want to live for. So we're going to have a time of, of invitation or decision. My prayer is that you, maybe for the first time, are seeing this rescue that God offers in a new light. Maybe you need to just sit back and dwell in the amazing grace, the amazing truth that you've received this because of what Jesus did. Maybe it's, Lord, help me want heaven for being in your presence. Maybe it's, Lord, who are you laying on my heart that I need to witness to? Whatever it is. If you want to join our church, you've thought about it. You want to join what we call this dysfunctional family. You can come forward as well. But right now is a time for you to think, Lord, how do I apply this? What does that mean for me? The fact that you provided this great exchange to be with you forever.